This is FM Forward, a podcast brought to you by IFMA Boston. I'm your host, Jackie Fowler. If you missed the fact that we both started and finished season two, it's understandable. We let the pandemic take over. In season three, I invite you to join me as we seize the 11 core competencies of the facilities management profession by the horns and wrangle insights from real estate professionals that get real with us about leverage, learn the language of lean for solving problems and empowering people, navigate our way through the internet of things and analyze outsourcing, insourcing, and being resourceful. You won't want to miss out. I'm Jackie Fowler, and I want to welcome you to season three. Steve Weichel of MIT Center for Real Estate. Steve's titles have titles and his talents have taken him on twists and turns to this timely moment in CRE history when technology is finally being taken seriously. Steve, thank you so much for being here with me today. Just a reminder to our audience members that we're still in the pandemic, so the sound quality might not be exactly where we'd like it to be. Forgive us. Jackie, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here and good to see you again. Oh, terrific. I know our audience is going to love to hear from you. So let's start with the three big picture trends, Steve. Prop, prop tech, fracking, and getting the most out of your asset. Prop tech is a little bit of a tongue twister, isn't it? It, it is. And those are, those are three big ones. And there are probably three or six or 10 other big ones too, but I'm glad you were able to narrow it down. Uh, so that normally we take a whole term to teach this. So uh, we'll try to hit the highlights and, uh, and, and give you an update on what's happening out there. What do you want to talk about first? Super. Well, um, I love the idea of fracking. I think that it sounds so violent and fabulous all at the same time. Um, why don't we dig into that? Sure, we can dig into that. Want me to give a little update on where we are with PropTech? Sure. Okay. Uh, for those of the listeners who follow PropTech, who are, who, uh, are, are into that uh, area, we follow it at the Center for Real Estate in the Innovation Lab. And I often get this question about what, what has happened during COVID. And there were some trends that were going on before COVID. And then there have been some kind of pivots going on as a result of COVID. And so there's still tremendous, I think that the headline is there's still a tremendous amount of capital going into the space. Also, I think the definition of prop tech is starting to blend and merge. This was going on before COVID, where there's an overlap between prop tech and fintech, or fintech and prop tech and construction tech, or hospitality tech, or civic tech, all of the techs. And now we've got climate tech is starting to sort of show up as a subgroup. So I think we'll continue to see this convergence of themes, and that's partly because of the convergence of solutions that are going on. Um, and it's not only the technology is allowing better integration, but kind of the philosophy and the approach is starting to become more and more integrated. And we, we can talk about this a little later where we're starting to see the emergence of certain platforms. There are still thousands and thousands of startups out there. Some of them um, didn't quite make it through COVID. And then there were a whole bunch of, there have been a whole bunch of new ones that have come up as well as a result in response to COVID. So still, we'll probably still, we'll find that 2020 probably had 12 or $15 billion of VC investment in prop tech. Uh, it was higher, 18 billion the year before, and, and the, the peak was about 28 billion two years prior to that. 
That's incredible. So is every type of company, Steve, just going to become really a technology company that serves in some way a particular market or industry? Oh, that's a good question. I know a lot of a lot of analog companies have tried the we're becoming a digital, we're now a tech company. Right. Some of them have been a little outrageous, but there is this 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 transformation of the real estate industry, transformation of the entire AEC space. And and what we can agree on, I think, is that the tremendous impact of the digital transformation that's going on. And that's for a variety of reasons. We have we have better hardware, we have better software, we've got better access to data. But in our in our business, it's still a physical business. So I don't I don't think that'll go away entirely. There still is a physical aspect to what we do in in real estate and and more broadly in the built environment. Sure, no question, and that's one of the reasons I love the industry so much, is because yeah. it is in fact <laughs> tangible. You know, you can touch it and see what you've been able to do. And I think it could really benefit from a technological transformation that increased efficiencies. Yes. So we there's a lot of opportunity in our business and possibly on the construction side started a little later, but there are some very exciting developments and progress there. But the reality is the, the industry still has a lot of friction. It has a lot of opacity. You look at any part of the ecosystem of the built environment, there are plenty of, of examples where there continues to be opacity, transactional uh, friction, opacity on information and data, information asymmetry, still a lot of kind of manual functions that are uh, siloed, um, a fragmented market with a lot of smaller players. Even the biggest of the big are still relatively small as a, fra- as a percentage of the industry. So anytime when you have that, and there are technologies that allow you to do things more, better, faster, I, I think that's that's just kind of ripe for transformation. I, I don't like to use the word disruption anymore because everybody uses it, but certainly a transformation, whether they are evolutionary changes, incremental changes, but sometimes they're revolutionary changes as well. Well, they should be. I mean, in the construction industry, we can all agree that we have been cemented in an old way of doing things for well over a century. Right. And it's it's time to get out the sledgehammer. So mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. And there'll be it'll be a little messy, it'll be painful and messy as we all try to figure out our way through this. But when we come out on the other side, I think it'll be pretty remarkable. Agreed. Agreed. So tell me I'm dying to hear about fracking. When I think about oil fracking and um, you know, a shifting landscape. I want to know how it that translates to the real estate environment. Sure, sure. So you know that we've been talking about this idea of fracking. My colleague, Professor Dennis Frenchman, coined the term a number of years ago. And so I get I, I like getting the ongoing question, what's going on with fracking? Where where are we? But for those of you who haven't heard us use the term, this is the idea that the that real estate uh, either physically or or the use of real estate has been continued uh, has continued over the last few years to get broken up into smaller pieces and then reconfigured into higher value combinations. And so, a good example of that you could take a look at co working, which has been around a long time. But just imagine what that is. That's taking the traditional business model of a, for instance, an office, a ten year lease with two five year renewals. 
And suddenly now the lease terms are shorter, they're more flexible. Sometimes if you're in a, like if you're in a co-working facility, you're on a you're on a, a license agreement, license contract rather than a lease contract. So there's a different legal structure structure. So, but you can see this in all product types where the old models of commitment and cost are all kind of coming undone and getting reconfigured and much of it is about optimization. So the space, as we know, even again, even prior to COVID, space was being better optimized and startups were looking at, at, at our assets, at the physical world and saying, oh, could I make money off that? Could I write an app that would allow me to rent space in some neighbor's garage to store my college junk? Or, which by the way, there is a startup that does that. Or wow. is, there, is there an app, and there are a couple of apps that allow me to get a better price on sell while we're on the storage topic, um, better um, uh, uh, better pricing on self storage because they have optimized, they have identified where there's square footage available in self storage, and 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 it doesn't have to be down the street where it's really expensive for me in Boston. It could be way out in the suburbs, but because I have this app, they optimize that, and I don't even see it. It's like magic working in the background. So. This is, and, and here's, one, here's a third example of a couple of companies that were taking a look at empty tables in restaurants when we were still going to restaurants, but empty tables in restaurants in the middle of the afternoon, they sit empty. Could we potentially bundle those and have those be temporary meeting space or temporary co-working space where you'd go in for two hours with your team and you'd pay a nominal amount of money and maybe you'd get free soft drinks and free AV, but for the restaurants, the, the AC and the heating is on. Yeah. And and so why not try to monetize that? So there are a whole bunch of examples, and I could I could go on and on on those examples. So what happened with COVID is, well, we all know what happened. We suddenly were all working at home. So this next version of and and it's it's maybe a third of this won't go away in the future. We might all have a third of our work lives may actually happen at our dining room table or our kitchen table. So what does that mean? Well, it means I would argue that the, we've now fracked the office all the way back into somebody's living room. Yeah. I don't right. Not only were we optimizing where the desks were and hot desking and hoteling and and the number of people and that minimizing the amount of space per employee, but now we took it to a new level because we fracked into the into your your home office or your dining room or your kitchen. I think that's interesting, and I wonder since there was you know particularly with some of the big landlord players there was mm -hmm. a neither a need to uh, bend or uh, adapt to that reality, that new reality. Um, and now we're in an entirely different situation, right? All of a sudden, everybody, even um, the largest and most successful uh, city landlords are saying, okay, you know, we need to look at the way we deliver space to people a little bit differently. Mm -hmm. Not just having a studio within a building that caters to a short-term worker, but maybe thinking about bigger blocks of our space and optimizing them um, for now a different workforce. Yes, yes. So the, 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 let's unpack that a little bit. You made a lot of great points. The we know that traditional landlord, the traditional model was under challenge. Let's just stick with co-working pre-COVID. Okay. 
co-working, this idea of flexible space, or as we later called it, space as a service, was already putting those old models under pressure. And the, the big owners and the big developers adapted to it. They started their branded their They either uh, signed, uh, uh, really got into partnership with the WeWorks and the Industriouses of the world mm-hmm. and the hotels. Or uh, as we saw, they started creating their own branded products to allow, the, to allow this greater flexibility for their key tenants. And so, and that was a that was a very logical strategy was to was to begin to provide flexibility, but not give everything up. <laughs> and wow. so, COVID has now forced us to pretty dramatically, probably, I would imagine, to rethink that even more dr- dramatically, um, because now it's not just co-working as a potential threat to space needs, but um, but now people working at home. And companies making decisions, announcing these big decisions that either we're not going to require workers to come in or, or we're not going to have main offices anymore. Um, I think it's fascinating. You know what idea I had, Steve? I thought because doing in-place renovations, it's, it's such an incredibly disruptive thing. What if the landlords used that co-working space um, to incentivize the move out for their tenants. You swing into the co-working space inside the same building that you come to, you know, every day of the week. While we quickly renovate your space, that's less disruptive to you. It actually speeds up the construction process considerably, saving everybody money. Mm-hmm. Um, and it maintains the asset on behalf of the landlord. What a great, what a great way to offer uh, an extra amenity or service to your tenants. Yes, it's a, uh, a, a short-term solution as well as a long-term solution. And I would imagine I, I, there are plenty of stories of when the building is getting redone, having to lease property in the building next door for the team for the year and a half or two years while the building's being redone. And it's as a property owner, if you own both buildings, that's fine. But if you don't own the building next door, you hate like heck to give the business to your competition across the street. Absolutely. But you sort of have no choice. But it's a little different rather than signing a lease with your competition it's a little different, I would imagine, signing a contract with a co-working company. It has a different feel. Yes, but if if it's not a co-working company, if it's instead the landlord, oh yeah, owns the space. The That's a good idea. Space. That's even better. Yeah, that's even uh, better. That to me is just smart business, and that's adapting to the change and looking at your asset in a way to, you know, have win-win situations. Right. And keep monetizing the space that previously would have just been written off as no value or, or at least hadn't been considered as a way to make money. Um, So let's talk about other product types. This is also happening. This, this next generation of fracking, or maybe it's not the next generation, but we are seeing in, if you look at warehouse uh, distribution and retail, there's an interesting mashup happening there with micro distribution and last touch distribution, uh, a company that's converting B and C class office buildings into distribution and storage kind of mixed use distribution buildings because they have good locations. They're urban, they have decent access, 
and they don't have a lot of high-end office tenants who, who would object to the alternative uses of the building. So I think, um, I think your uh, listeners could watch for, if not permanent convert conversions, temporary conversions of old office buildings. There's another startup doing street front retail that's sort of doing pickup and delivery, again, last, last block delivery, where the trucks will unload a bunch of stuff, and then the bicycle delivery folks will pick up their loads there. Um, uh, off um, Parking garages. Yes. Some really cool, there's a company called Volley that's, that's building robotic systems, another one called Fabric, building robotic systems to help either optimize and frankly, frack these parking garage facilities, these assets, either for parking or for storage or for distribution or for package handling. Huh. Again, um, a rethinking of how the space is used and trying to better monetize the, uh, frankly, the cubic footage, because there's also a third dimension. It's not just square feet anymore. Especially when you come to storage, you're looking at the third dimension too. You're looking at cubic feet. Is this be, being driven like by Amazon and and all how much we order online? Yeah, it was going on before COVID. But look at the look at the just staggering spike in in everything that we order from home and all of the traffic that's working through the system. I, it's remarkable. I'm not a logistics guy. It's remarkable that the system has held up. Because we've, I don't know, what are the numbers, three or four or tenfold or 20-fold increase in traffic through the distribution. Now, plus, you got all the returns. I know that's a concern as well. We've never, we've only engineered for one direction over the years. We've never fully understood the reverse uh, distribution that's necessary with all of the returns that come back. So you're my sister. You don't worry about that. You just keep the things that you don't like. You never that, so. That's that's why she's a a probably a platinum member of Amazon Prime. Yeah, I think you're right. They <laughs> like that. So anyway, that's so that's that's what's happening on the fracking. Just to just to just to put a bow on it. This idea that the what the space is used for is continuing to be reconfigured and rethought. Uh, how to make money, how to make any money, if not better money on whatever metric you're using, whether it's dollar per square feet or dollar per cubic feet, what have you. I, I think it's going to be a fat. Oh, I, I just, let me one, one other, you know, one other headline from the Wall Street Journal was about uh, hotels offering private workspace in, in their rooms. So are hotels going to become co-working? Maybe not on a large scale, but what about hotels that are trying to get people into their building? Could they become, for the people who are exhausted from working at home, they might have families to manage, they might have pets, there might be a lot of distractions. And where can they go? Well, they could go to a hotel slash co-working place and have their own private office sitting in a hotel room every day. Yeah. It, that's... That would be safe and secure. So, so anyway, that's, did I cover everything on fracking? Did that help? I think you did. And I think it leads in nicely, actually, to what does all of that mean to the building asset? So in part, we understand we're trying to wring more value out of the asset. We're trying to get the asset to produce, be used to its maximum capability. But what else? What else is happening in terms of technology um, to try to increase the value 
uh, on the tenant side or on the landlord side? That's a good question because you, arguably, if that just to just I don't want uh, I'll come back to fracking for just a moment. Those models are hard to underwrite. It's hard to understand what cash flows look like on a building that's filled with. When an office building goes from ten-year leases over to operating like a hotel, which is which is the uh, the tenure is one night basically or three hours or you know if you have a hotel filled with co-working, there was always a struggle with understanding how to underwrite it. Um, the blanket lease, you know, if you felt that that WeWork was a was a credit tenant, then you were okay. But we know that that wasn't the you know that didn't work. Um, and then COVID hit. So I think it will be hard to understand how now do we configure buildings and how do we underwrite them? What do the cash flows look like and how do we value them? The center spends a lot of time trying to understand the value of innovation and it doesn't always come out positive. It, sometimes these are innovations that for a variety of reasons catch fire, but maybe you can't finance them, <laughs> which is a dilemma, which is especially if it if it catches on in a way that there's tremendous demand, but we can't figure out how to monetize it. So that is a challenge. So I think, um, but coming back to your question, the, there's been uh, a lot of technology around the human interface with the built environment. And again, this was going on before COVID, trying to understand how the humans interact with the building. If you're in the office business, you know a lot by now about tenant engagement apps. And what did those, that, that, that category of tenant engagement, which was really great. It had, some of them had some access in them. You could report a light bulb out or you were too hot or too cold, or you could order lunch. You could find out where there was a desk open for you if they had a flexible seating arrangement. What's happened now that's very exciting as a result of COVID is the pivot toward not only those services, but all of the things that are necessary to get people back into buildings. It's not just offices, but let's take offices as an example. So contact tracing, proximity tracing, scheduling for sanitization, elevator uh, uh, bookings to get up and down in the elevator that some of these platforms now are including the interface with elevator operations, with with restroom cleaning. so you'll see a lot more functionality. Some of that functionality, maybe not quite as nice to have, but more have to have. You know, this is arguably not to be too dramatic about it, but some of this is a matter of life and death. We need to keep people safe in order before they're going to be willing to come back to the office. Absolutely. So and I so, imagine that the functionality around the apps would also include alerts, like we recognize that somebody has tested positive and that means that a segment of the building or an office um, is shut down for access. Yeah, no, I, I, those, I, I've seen that discussion and I, have no, I would not be surprised to see that going on as well. The alerts to either um, uh, any kind of health and that might even go into alerts for for uh, natural, you know, that natural uh, disasters, tornado alerts, all of that, which we already sort of had. But will there be this one place that manages the ecosystem of the operation? And then it, it will for for your uh, for your FM um, uh, folks. I have no doubt if they aren't already integrating, they're starting to integrate into the legacy systems, they're into the, the uh, uh, IWMS systems, they're into the VMS systems, they're into all of the different systems. And it, it may not be in the future, this kind of 
perfect, seamless, one app solution. But I think we're going to see a consolidation of the different solutions. Hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting, Steve. Now, I wonder, uh, many folks believe that this won't be the last of the pandemics. So I can actually see this technology continuing to receive investment and fortification as it would be you know, used permanently. It's, it's not a temporary and then pivot back to the way it was you know, in February of last year. I agree with you. We're not, we're not far enough into it to know, but I would imagine uh, there will be a number of these tools that people love and they would say, why get rid of it? So, but there will be some that maybe were unique to COVID. So possibly temperature scanning, possibly facial recognition where it's permitted. Mm -hmm. Those are a few examples. Those might go away. Those might go away because they were more unique to COVID. But the, uh, and, and maybe the elevator booking, you know, because we're, we're, we're hearing these stories about how difficult that is to kind of manage large groups of people getting them up into the buildings. Yes. But there are other ones that, you, to your point, that people may really enjoy. They may really like knowing where can I find a desk that, is, that doesn't have any occupancy within 12 feet around me because I'm easily distracted or I've got a big project going on. I don't know that we could do that before. I don't know if, we, that was, if there were tools to visualize just as an example, visualize that. Um, we, we, we had room booking, we had desk booking, but you know, maybe, and maybe, somebody is, maybe somebody has an ongoing health issue and they need to be on a floor that has certain parameters to maintain their health and it's not related to COVID. Yeah. So and what about booking a treadmill or yeah. a bike? And, you know, lots of folks don't like you know, having somebody next to them or having to wait. Yeah. And the worst when you're actually on the treadmill and somebody is standing behind you going, like, how right. many more minutes do you have on this? <laughs> right. The app could tell you exactly when you could go and be uninterrupted. Yeah, that's true. That's a practical, that's not even necessarily a COVID thing. Don't we wish we could book the, the Peloton in the gym for a specific time? Yes. That would be great. And then I could plan my day around it rather than having to wait around to get on it or anticipate which time of the day I can get in. It's, it's hugely time consuming. So that's a good example of something that may not be COVID related or maybe not even health related. But as a result of the COVID experience, we are now becoming more sensitive to these kinds of engagement with, with people, places and things. Right. Because we're so tuned in to issues of capacity. Yes. Yes in a way that perhaps we just felt like it was an inconvenience before. Missed the bike, missed the class, missed the whatever, and right. you granted. Now, right. <laughs> now we're, we're planning much more carefully as a result of things like 25% capacity in the restaurant. Yes. yes. Or, you know. I've also noticed, just for me personally, there's a certain amount of exhaustion now. There was so much in our lives that was on autopilot that didn't have any angst or concern, you didn't have to think about, you just showed up, you did your shopping and you left. Now I find there's a fair amount of angst around which time of the day is the store not as busy? 
right. what time of the week, which time of the day, uh, how do I maintain my proximity? There's all there's much more sensitivity, at least in the immediate COVID situation, that is exhausting. So will we be able to uh, find solutions to make that angst go away and to, to have life be more seamless and automated, but in a different way than it was before COVID? Yeah, it's interesting. There's also, you know, we always are going to be thinking about ways to, you know, get a, a Boy Scout or Girl Scout badge. I waited in line the longest. The, the Trader Joe's experience this week in the snow and rain took <laughs> an hour and 23 minutes. I clocked it to get in, you know, but it's did, all- did you get did you get the box of JoJo's? Was it worth it? Hey, listen. <laughs> Always worth it. <laughs> always, it's always, always worth it. Um, no, it's it's it has been interesting, and you're right. Um, it has caused a lot of angst, mm-hmm. um, and some of the the technologies for people that aren't don't come around to using them easily, mm-hmm. um, like the digital natives, mm-hmm. uh, are starting to become much more comfortable with them and and find enjoyment in fact in what they deliver in terms of a service. So, let's Yeah, that that's that's a good point before we leave that topic. We I, there are plenty of stories that I've shared anecdotally with friends and colleagues that take for example ordering on Amazon. Yeah. Where there's a, a portion of the of the population who would say, oh, I have no need for that because I love going to the grocery store. I would never really have a need to order on Amazon. And then we find my 88-year-old mother ordering stuff on Amazon. You know, that could be a little frightening. But but yeah. nonetheless, we what has happened is what the arguably younger generations who have a kind of a different relationship with technology that has now spread to other cohorts, other demographic cohorts. And partly by reality, but partly uh, the the reality then drove the ease and the comfort uh, in doing it. So, so that, and that happens with technology that it does spread out after everybody. Remember how hard zoom was when we all first got on it, terribly frustrating, couldn't figure it out, which buttons do what. And then now it's second nature. So that isn't that genie's not going back into the bottle and being able to get things on demand, being able to get real estate on demand, get my lunch on demand, get my dry cleaning on demand, get a car on demand, this whole on demand life, including, by the way, residential. So the residential models are also very much under pressure. It's not just single family rental, which was a was an innovation, a significant innovation, but also these shorter term kind of furnished whether they are a co-living environment, which is one version. The other version is for digital nomads, where people really don't have a permanent address. They work three months in Hong Kong. They work six months in London. Now, not every job is appropriate for this. It will support this. But there is going to be a large portion of the workforce that has now the flexibility. Their companies have said, you don't need to come back to the office. And they're going to be looking. Wait a minute, I don't have a home. I've been living off of your dime in a hotel. Well, that's true. That's true. They'll have to sort out where they're going to live and who's paying for it and how they're going to live. But now, before you might have had to, if you were a digital nomad, you had to be your own founder, your own kind of boss. 
But what happens if you're at a company like, say, Google, where you used to go to the office and they say, oh, well, you can work from wherever you want now. There will probably be demand. And this isn't just moving from downtown San Francisco to suburban San Francisco. This might be moving from downtown San Francisco to Bali, <laughs> if, you right. data, if you can get data, data connectivity. So I don't know what that means. What does that mean? And what would that product look like? What, it, it won't look like a for sale product on the residential side. It might look like it's kind of a rental, furnished rental product, but there will be some expectations about what are included in the amenities and what the commitment is and all of it. Mm. That I could take a huge divergent path, which <laughs> would have us on this uh, podcast for hours. So I'm not going to go down it. Okay. What living in Bali? Uh, the we could do that too. <laughs> people about how important the the culture of the organization is and generational needs and differences as it results yes. as it relates to you know, working from home um, and also just personality types. I feel like there's so, there is so much to be had from being in an office with people from um, socialization, from culture, from learning. Um, and, and frankly, you know, from your ability to grow um, within an organization that it's just a, it's a bit it's a harder sell for me if you're sitting at your living room table and I wonder how many folks will just have a price tag on their head and and they're available for the highest bidder if um, if the living room is what is on offer. Yes, you make a good point. We nobody has begun to look. We're not far enough into it to be able to start gathering data on. What was the sociological aspect of this, this working from home? Because as much as you and I like to talk about technology, technology succeeds or fails often on the human part of it, um, which, which is, I know, frustrating to technology people, but it, you can have a great solution. But if the human behavior doesn't support it, it doesn't matter. So I think there's still a lot of work to be understood about about teams and um, uh, and corporate transformation and how to get the best performance and the best value out of individuals and what environment they require. And we know that they're, everybody has their own unique perspective on how they are most productive and how they contribute in the best way. And that may mean being in an office. Uh, there is some data, as you may have read, some data on the percentage of people that would like to be in the office at least one or two days a week, I think it's up around 65%. Yes. So I, I, I don't, the future does not look like offices go away and everybody works from their living room. That clearly is not the case. There will be some kind of blended model and understanding which teams require a certain version of that model or which team members are require a certain version of the overall model. That's going to be, challenging to figure out, but I suspect we'll figure it out. And it's not about the technology. No, it, it, I don't think that it is, but I do think it's about the data. And oh, yeah. segue very nicely into our conversation about, you know, we years ago it was all about big data, big data, big data. And then it became smart data, right? Um, mm -hmm. What is it now? What's the next iteration? 
uh, well, the next, so, so we've come a long way, but you're right. Big data is no longer a thing because quantity means nothing. Quality means everything. And also compatibility means everything. Hmm. So we now have the tools to extract the right data and also process it and begin to make draw conclusions. So that's, that's going pretty well, um, but whether it be AI or machine learning or deep learning or any of these other more elaborate versions as they continue to evolve, the, the recognition, I would say the industry has recognized that it was already generating immense amounts of data or had the opportunity to generate immense amounts of data. So I think probably in your world in construction, certainly in real estate, the recognition that if you can get data and you can store it, even if you don't quite know what you're going to use it for, you know it has some value. We just haven't fully figured it out yet. But companies are getting better at it. Both, both the companies themselves and also uh, third-party startups are starting to identify challenges in our respective businesses saying, oh, we, if, we had the, if we had the data, we could make that easier or we could solve that. And then, then they say, oh, well, actually, we already gather that data or we could be already gathering that data. We just never knew it. Could you give me a couple of examples or, or one great example to help me understand a little better how that works? Sure. So let's talk about, let's talk about proximity in a, in a workplace. So we already have sensors in the workplace that were helping us optimize space. Mm-hmm. And, and that, and now that's a recent development, but, but that's helping us to determine where to put the desks how many desks we need, what the actual utilization is. That might be either beacons or sensors in the ceiling. It could be sensors in the chairs or the desks, if you look at some of the office furniture providers. Um, so, Or you could track uh, cell phone traffic. You could see where somebody's cell phone was. Um, so that was to say, oh, I wonder how many desks we really need. How often are these are our employees really using their desks? And so the evolution there was assigned desks that were underutilized to either hot desking or hoteling or shared desking. That was the evolution. But then since we already know that, could we just add a little code that says, oh, by the way, you can't have people closer than, you can't have a chair closer than six feet to another chair. So you just write a little more code and that now generates, you now take that data that you had and it causes you to reallocate where the desks go. And then you write a little more code and you put in an alert for a person who doesn't want anybody in the desk behind them, in front of them, or to the left or the right. And so I, I don't know if this is a great example, but I'm, I'm kind of getting at this idea of this evolution where we add a little more code, new layers of code, sort of the same data that we had before, sure. but a better and better application of the data that we have. I like it. And I can see where if I'm you know, a facilities management professional, and I'm listening to this, I'm getting on the horn to my IT people right now and saying, start writing that bit of code, because (laughs) when folks begin to come back in July, August, September, they're going to want to know these things. And we need to help increase their comfort and perception Mm -hmm. of what's happening. Yeah, let me... Let me jump over to energy 
Okay. Energy, I think, is always a good example. That was one of the early areas of prop tech where you could prove a return on your investment. Because um, let's just take let's just take heating and cooling, for example, or water. You had a monthly water bill. That was your data point. The monthly water bill, and maybe you know that kind of the 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 volume of of electricity, for example, or the volume of water. And then your cost, and then your monthly bill. So you had you basically had twelve data points a year. <laughs> right. So some of the clever companies took that, and then they modeled it, and then they found that um, there were new smart meter systems that, well, instead of just once a month, now we were getting it once a day, or maybe once once a week, or then once a day, or then constantly. So that's another example of data that was that information was there. It wasn't being captured. And because of hardware and software, we're now able to capture that on a more regular basis. So let's turbocharge that. What happens when that becomes part of a digital twin? And the digital twin, for those of the listeners who don't know what that is, digital twin is the digital representation of a building, the digital manifestation of the physical world. So not only is it a 3D this is a little like video gaming. Not only is it a 3D visual representation, but it has all of the systems in it. And in the, in the future, all of the data that comes out of our buildings, which I had one person describe a building as a computer with a roof on it. All of that data will be fed into this thing called a digital twin. And it'll be this living, breathing, digital representation of the building. And it'll be real time. So you've got you've got these alerts when a certain maybe an HVAC, maybe maybe some kind of solenoid an event is not performing optimally. You'll get a flag and it'll show you where it is in the building and it'll analyze why it's not working and it'll explain why it thinks it's not working. That's just one tiny little example of these very complex assets that we manage. Will it deploy uh, either a work order or say the order for the purchase of a piece of equipment that's failed? Possibly, possibly. I mean, you could, that's a good question. If you've modeled it in a way that when this, when this um, air handler starts malfunctioning, you know, because you've analyzed data from the manufacturer of the air handler, they've, man- they've, they've analyzed the performance. You know that you've got X number of days or hours or weeks until it fails completely. So now you have an algorithm that determines, well, when do we order the new part? When do we send out a repair person? They, it models the risk of having a full failure. And I want it to analyze the marketplace, source it from the place I can get it the quickest and cheapest from. Absolutely. All at the same time. How Absol- exciting. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's like magic, right? This is like magic, but it's going to be possible. This oh, is, I can't is, believe you brought up magic. Don't make me say it. <laughs> Don't make me no, no. tell about one of your talents. Let me say science fiction. This is like science fiction, but we'll we'll Good we'll thing. talk we'll talk about the other thing on another one. Um, so this is like science fiction, but not really like science fiction, where where we will know when those parts are going to fail and if people have to be sent out and when the part has to be ordered, and maybe now you're integrated with the supply chain so you know, I won't order it this month because historically prices have been dro- had prices drop in January. So the model is telling me I can wait three weeks and I'll save 15% on this very expensive piece if I wait until the 1st of February. Now I'm going to make an even more complicated 
for you and perhaps for our listeners by saying, how do you create an intervention in a system like that if I'm the building owner and I know I'm selling in six months? Is that just another piece of code that says, if this thing is going to break in seven months, don't order, don't place the order because I won't be the owner anymore. Is, mm-hmm. there, is that just another piece of code, Steve? Well, you could. I mean, don't don't building owners do that already with their capital reserve studies? But if my system's just automatically ordering it. Oh, well, yeah, you probably could go in and override. You could, you could yes. I would imagine that they've got a, a, a mechanism. You would write a mechanism in that says, I'm expecting, I'm in the middle of closing the deal, and therefore I want to put a hold on these types of concerns, and I want to go ahead and process these types of concerns. So uh, you would repair the, you would address the elevator servos, but you might not address the heating ovens in the cafeteria. What I love about this is that it acts as also a communication tool because so much of that information might flow to certain groups in the organization, but not flow through the organization in its entirety as it relates again to the FM and what the FM is trying to do. And when you understand what the vision and intent of of the C-suite or the leadership is, you can model your own behavior and the and the effort that you put in to align with that. That's such an important component of what happens in these buildings or doesn't happen the way it could or should. Mm, right. I'm I'm sure in your you you are exposed to this a lot more than I am. But I would imagine that you have some owners that are very meticulous. They want everything to be first class, everything to be tip top shape. And sometimes and they're willing to take a lower return on their investment in order to do that because it's part of the image of the building. Yeah. But you have other owners that don't have the luxury of being able to repair every tiny little fray or chip in the paint. And therefore, they have a different perhaps more forgiving model of what gets addressed and what doesn't. Absolutely. And, and there's everything in between. And there's everything in between. Yeah. Everything in between where, so, you know, prioritizing and making smart decisions around life cycle costs. Yes. And, um, again, I think the technology actually can support a better understanding of what the ROI is, mm-hmm. and it can be communicated up and down the chain. Uh, that's true. That's true. And coming back to the data, I'll give one more example that I just thought of uh, in this in this area. Um, we're going to see increasing pressure on uh, climate and sustainability, whether it's by ten, it's from tenant demand. Um, it may be demand from tenants. It may be demand from ESG mandates on the owners. It may be government regulation. So imagine how do you understand uh, if you have to replace replace a lighting system in a building? That's very complicated. And you're trying to decide this kind of system versus that kind of system. 
So first of all, you need, in order to measure anything, you have to have data. First, you have to define it. You can't measure anything you can't define. So you have to define it. Then you have to determine what data will help you make this decision. And then you have to figure out how to gather that data. But what if you had this digital world where you already knew how your lighting system was performing? And then you could model, am I going to keep the, the lighting infrastructure, but just replace the fixtures? And if I just replace the fixtures, what kind of fixtures? I have all of these different options. Or wait a minute, there's power over ethernet. What happens if I replace the entire lighting system with a PoE system and at the same time upgrade my data system? So, and I'm just, I'm just listing two weird examples wow. of something that's tremendously complex and could have huge financial implications for the building and then the value of the building too. How does this impact the value of the building so that the owners can better under, this isn't, as you know, this isn't just about lowering my lighting costs. This has impacts on the valuation of the building and, and owners don't wanna just know about lowering the lighting costs. They probably wanna know about what does that do to the valuation on my building. Oh, absolutely. Excellent. So we, as usual, we technology causes us to ask more questions than we have answers for. I know. We need a digital librarian with a great Dewey Decimal System. Uh, true, true. It's, it can be a bit overwhelming. So anyway, so did we cover, did that answer your questions about data? It did I answer hope. my questions about data. And I, I know our FMs that are listening to this are saying, I want so many specifics around what technologies exist out there? What are the technologies doing? And I understand you happen to know some folks out there um, in our area uh, that are at the very forefront of just this type of, of prop tech and that you are gonna connect us to some of those folks so that we can have additional conversations and do deep dives into some facilities management software. Yes, I would be glad to make those introductions for you. Those founders and the people active on the front lines will have a very, very valuable perspective on, on why they're doing what they're doing and how they see the future and they may, they, they may know areas that they don't think are as important. And you could either agree or disagree with them as a, as a facilities manager. But I think it would be very, it's always instructive to hear from the founders. What inspired them to go out and solve a particular problem? And why do they think that in the future it's, it's important? Yeah, I love it. I can't thank you enough for being here today and sharing some of your insights we didn't get to talk about construction tech. And I may not be the right guy. Um, there, there are a bunch of really great people that I could connect you with on construction tech. It's just fascinating. The, I mean, all of the stuff that you shared, I think, is really, really important to set the stage for these kind of deep dives into the technology. And I think it, I think it's important to get some of the facilities management professionals connected to some of these founders because they should be in conversation with one another, not yeah. just you. Like they have so many, you know, whenever you understand the pain points of mm -hmm. the people that are, are in the trenches trying to address the issues, yeah. herein comes the innovation, right? Yeah. The other thing we didn't talk about is it can be overwhelming and, and you're, you're, facilities managers are probably getting bombarded with startups that want to do trials. 
And yeah. and everybody's everybody's been forced to do more with less. And yeah. it is really hard. So I, I could have added that the, the best thing to do is make a list, make a list, a wish list of the of the the challenges you have or the specific problems that you'd like to be able to solve. And then and narrow it down. And then and this will come up, this should come up in your in your other sessions, but narrow it down and just try not to boil the ocean because otherwise it's too overwhelming. I, and and at MIT, we get to boil the ocean because we talk about the future and there's no there are no guardrails on the future. Yeah. That can be a bit overwhelming. So when I was talking about digital twin, only a fraction of the market is going to actually have the money to be able to do a real live digital twin. Right. The other rest of the market is going to do some kind of basic version. Maybe they'll just monitor HVAC. Maybe they'll just monitor access in the building. It'll be much more, I don't want to say rudimentary, but much more basic. But also very helpful to them. You know, sometimes, yes. like you said, just picking the big, the one biggest pain point and solving for that mm-hmm. can change their everyday experience and that of their the users. You know? Yeah, they so so possibly maybe the maybe there's a spike in front desk security. Why yeah. is that? Why why was there in cost in cost? Why was there a spike in my security cost? Is there a solution that would allow me to streamline that in a way that makes operations better, that lowers my cost, and that is trustworthy? And makes the user experience better. And, and nothing that frustrates people more than having to wait, particularly in the morning. Exactly. Waiting in line. So that's a great example of a uh, that, that's a great example of a specific problem that technology can be used to solve. It's in a relatively isolated. It doesn't. It it can integrate with the rest of the ecosystem, but it doesn't have to. It's just access. And so maybe another example is I've had a huge spike in my in my in my hot water charges. Or, or my, you know, my my electricity or my gas that's running the boiler in the building or, you know, whatever, whatever, and someplace in the energy area where you could actually isolate a spike in cost. And then you could begin by process of elimination to isolate where the problem is. So if you find out that it's leaky windows, well, that's I mean, that's kind of an old school solution. You've got leaky windows. You have to figure out how to replace or repair the windows. But what if you find out it's on a certain floor, the thermostats keep getting adjusted by the people, by by the uh, by the um, the tenants. Mm-hmm. So maybe you come up with an electronic, a remote controlled. Maybe it, the cost is justified to come up with a remote controlled thermostatting system. And so now you've used technology to solve your problem, and then you see if that actually solved your problem and brought down your cost. So I'm I'm riffing a little here on some specific examples so that we don't get overwhelmed. I wouldn't want anybody to say, oh, I have to go out and do a digital twin because they're really expensive and really complicated and they may not solve the problem. <laughs> uh, agreed. And, you know, I always coming from the academic side of the world where, um, you know, doing construction for you know the Yale universities, the MITs, the Harvard, you understand that one of the reasons that they have that nonprofit status is to change the social environment for the better, right? And you do that, they do that through 
research through pushing um, the envelope on investigating new technologies so that they can trickle down to the general population. Mm -hmm. The ones that don't work, as you say, some of them never going to have an ROI that makes That's true. And while they'd be great, but those are going to get, you know, pushed off of the plate to the general population. And it's just amazing how many, what an institution can do with their resources and uh, the platform that they have available yes. to them. We also have the room to fail. And, and FMs who are listening, there's career risk, there's financial risk, you, there's, wow. there's, there's upset tenant risk. You know, you can't, unfortunately, you don't have a lot of room to fail. So that's why identifying the specific problem, talking to a lot of people, doing some, some parallel testing, run some parallel systems, and, and then talk, talk to those of us in academia to try to get our, our perspective, because we might give a different perspective. And, um, and not be enamored by the technology, be enamored by finding a solution. Such a good point. Such a great point. Thank you. I hope, I hope that helps with some practical frontline guidance. And the other guests that you have will be able to speak to that as well. I think it's wonderful. It's yep. just fascinating stuff. It was, it's always a pleasure uh, talking to you about this, Jackie, because I know you're, you're excited about this. I'm excited about it. And my colleagues at the, at the Center for Real Estate do such amazing work and, and uh, allow me to share it with the rest of the industry to help move the industry forward in a way that is, um, is productive and, and uh, makes everybody's jobs a little bit easier and, and take advantage of all these great technologies that are coming online. It's, it's fascinating stuff. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Thanks, Jackie. We want to thank you for listening today. Visit ifmaboston.org slash podcast to see all of the show notes and any resources discussed in the episode. I'm your host, Jackie Falla, and this is FM Forward, where if you're an FM, buildings are assets, and it's your job to keep people happy or at least happily working. Until next time.